Flamme Au ciel d'été Confond ses blancs moutons Avec les anges Et pure la mer G'day listeners Welcome to another episode of Float Your Boat what? I'm George Sabados. No, you're not. Oh, sorry. I'm yes. over here, Brett. I'm right in front of you. I'm Brett Pattinson and you are? <laughs> Who do you think I am? It's been a look, uh, uh, look, if we have regular listeners, they know who I am. But what about the ones that don't know us? I'm George Sabados. Thank you. And I'm so glad to be back again, Brett. Now, now today yes. we're going to go under the sea, sort of. Under the sea. Under the sea, darling, it's better down where it's wetter. Take it from me. Up on the shore, they work all day. Out in the sun, they slave away. While the devoting full time, you floating under the sea. <laughs> we are? Well, you know. No, no. Tell them we... about our. Uh, tell them about today's. Well, actually, the reason I started with a yeah, g'day, how are you going is because our Our English today. Rose is turning up today, a Jacqueline Bosher. Correct. Yes. Now, she's very uh, posh. I, I thought so when I first met her. I was convinced she was English. Yeah, she runs an eco committee at uh, one of the uh, schools that we attended um, and she did such a fabulous job of speaking to me. <laughs> she actually <laughs> gave me the time of day. I thought, well... Well, if you can give me the time of day here, why don't we get you into the studio and you can tell us a little bit about yourself. And, and gee, um, Jacqueline uh, helps uh, clean up the beaches down in her area at South Maroubra. So it, it has got to do with under the sea, George. Yeah, it does. It does. But it's born out of her, out of her profession, which, which came from, I, I guess, one of her um, driving forces as a child. You know, she's, she's an interior designer with a, 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 strong, a strong focus on, on uh, sustainability. And so, what's the name of her platform? Uh, the Design Commission. No, but the other one? Uh, the... Oh, um, yeah, God, this is not make a difference, live the difference now. Which live is the a... difference now. Are we going to cut that out? No. We're not? I'm never, I never cut the preamble out because but, but people, people think it's really we, funny we how, preg- how we stutter, th- you know. That, stu- that was a pregnant pause, Brett. We're, we're, we're supposed to be recording professionals. Mm. Yeah, it's one thing to suppose. I've got a knock-knock joke for you. <laughs> Tell me. Knock-knock. No, no, no. No, you, you start. No, you start. No, you start. Knock, knock. Who's there? <laughs> well, how about this one? How about you start? <laughs> how about this one? Knock, knock. Who's there? Interrupting cow. Moo. <laughs> That's not even funny. I don't even know why I chuckled with you. I'm, I'm speechless. Because you love my dad jokes. I do. I do love your dad jokes. So, I probably love so your dad more. We, sh- we should get Jacqueline in, right? I Jacqueline. Think so. Stop talking. Let's get her in. Okay.
So we brought you in. We brought you in today to explain a little bit about your bent in life, um, mm-hmm. but it goes back to when you were a little girl. Yeah. So let's yeah, go back. Bef- so. Let's go back to where you come from. Mm. Well, I have an English accent, but I'm not English. I'm Australian. I'm Is that a right? Sydney cider. Yep. I grew up. So um, you're posh. Well, I don't. I mean, I don't have a posh English accent. If you take me to England and com- compare me to other <laughs> English <laughs> accents, but. It does sound uh, rather clipped here, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Sounds really posh. But I grew up on the edge of Karingo National Park and spent naught to ten just getting around outside and in the bush and, you know, a very so, normal Aussie kid, 70s outdoor I'm life. confused. Well, when I was ten, my family and I moved to England because my dad okay. got offered a job and it was meant to be for two years. I ended up staying for 12 and my father's still there. Right. So became quite English in that time. I mean, high school and uni is what I was there for. So, I mean, developed the accent, haven't mm. lost the accent. But the funny thing is when you live overseas for quite a long time, I think either you kind of convert to that place or your understanding of where you come from being part of you becomes really clear. And I think for all of us, I'm from a family of five, um, it became really clear to us really quickly that we were very Australian in a very different place. I mean, we were quite exotic <laughs> to the kids and the, the people that we met in England when we first <coughs> got there. You know, we, we ran with bare feet. You know, we were all Which was runners. unusual we for became, the English? Well, we, they were just like, we went joined the local athletics club and they were like, what are these exotic Aussies, you know? <laughs> I mean, it was when Zola Bud was running, right? Yeah. So it was this kind of... Zola Bud. And they, I mean, they loved our accents. I obviously had an Aussie accent when we, when we went there. Um, and English people still know I'm not English. They can hear, they can hear the Aussie accent, even though I can't even hear the Aussie in me. Really? I can't. So whereabouts, whereabouts did you live? In England? Yeah. Uh, south of London, about an hour south of London, by car, half an hour on the train. Right. Um, I grew up sort of across Surrey and Kent because I lived in Surrey right on the border and went to school in Kent. Right. Um, so, yeah, English private high school system and then um, uni in London. What so. did you do at university? I studied, well, at school, um, the equivalent of HSC is A-levels and you just specialise in three subjects. So I studied art, um, classics and French. Um, I wanted to do art, maths and design, but I was told that that was what boys would do and that I wasn't, that wasn't very, um, girls weren't really meant to do design. It was where they put boys who didn't, uh, you know, succeed in other areas. Um, of course, if I'd been able to do art, maths and design, I probably would have been an architect by the time I left uni. But anyway, I did art, French and classics, which I ended up loving. I love the French language. I love ancient Greek 
history and literature and all that sort of thing. Um, and when I went to uni, I tried to keep all of that up. So I did a joint degree in uh, the French and classics departments. And in my third year, when I had to go to France for a year, which was part of your degree, to actually go to um, France and spend the whole year there, really does um, bring your language level up a, a whole lot. Mm. I went to art school. Right. So I managed to keep it all up in the air and as broad as possible because I didn't really want to specialise in one thing. I was interested in too many things. And, your, and brothers and sisters, are they close in age to you? Um, I've got two younger brothers. Um, they're much closer in age to each other. Right. They've always been the, the boys, the team. Yeah, right. And I was the older sister, you know, generally quite annoyed with them, but always blamed for the trouble that they created. <laughs> Thanks, boys. You sound like my older sister. Uh-huh. And now I've got two boys myself. Like it's just like history repeats And how old, are they, how old are your two boys? Uh, 13 and 15. So oh, they yeah, fight right, like so. cats and dogs, do they? No, they not as much as my brothers did, but they do annoy the right. crap out of each other. <laughs> <laughs> Siblings are good at that, aren't they? Oh, yeah. yeah. They're, they're very oh, good yeah. at that. Yeah. So, um, yeah. so, and do you, do they, does your family live here now apart from your father? Yeah, we, yeah. We basically, my parents split and we were all old enough to kind of figure out where we wanted to go ourselves. We, we, all of us could have stayed in England if we wanted. Mm. Um, uh, but yeah, we all ended up basically coming home in dribs and drabs. It was never like as a collective whole, but. Mm. Why? Why did you Why feel... I always knew I'd come back to Australia. My brothers always knew they'd come back to Australia. I mean, it sort of didn't matter how long we stayed in England. It, it almost felt more imperative to go home the longer we stayed. Mm. And so so the, the great irony for me is that no one thinks I'm Australian, but I know in my core, you know, how important this, this place is to me, like how I feel I belong to it. Like the landscape feels really... Me. The only other place in Europe that I felt really at home was Greece. And that was because of that big blue sea and the, that blue sky. You know, you don't, just yes, don't get that. you don't. And even just the dry landscape, you know, that yep. was really just, mm, I had a connection to that more than the lovely woods and hills and castles and, you know, stuff of Northern Europe. Oh, I do know. I mm. do know. Mm. I mean, I, every time I go to Greece, it's, it has an air have of a, familiarity. Yes, it just kind of everything tightens up, you know. Yeah. I think sort of comes into line. Yeah. yeah. So, so you came back to Australia by yourself, single? No, you by then I was, well, I went to school in England with an Aussie boy. And um, okay. we went out when we were 15. The plot thickens. <laughs> and then well, we were the only two Australians in the whole school. So we sort of had a bit of a connection. But, I mean, he was a blonde spunk as well. You know? <laughs> blonde spunky Aussie <laughs> bloke. Exactly. Yeah, good at, yeah. He Ad, still did he, is. He, he, didn't, he didn't surf by any chance, did no, he? No, no. No, he's a skier. A skier? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That was. But um, so we kind of uh, met each other again when we were 19 when I was out here for um, like you know, just knocking around, staying with all my relatives. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I came back when I was 21, by that time when I finished uni, we were just fully committed to each other. So I spent a year, uh, sorry, six months on the Gold Coast when I first came back. He was finishing uni. And um, I knew I wanted to work in art galleries. That's really where I, my passion was to work, even though I'd studied all these different things. Um, so I started volunteering in contemporary art spaces in Brisbane at the Institute of Modern Art and, a, and an Aboriginal art gallery called Fireworks Gallery. 
And then once he'd finished uni, we just moved straight away to Sydney and, and um, I got a job at Performance Space as, right. a, as a trainee initially sort of helping run the gallery and then eventually as a visual arts coordinator at Performance okay. Space, which was awesome fun, just so much fun. I mean, that's, that, that, that strikes me as the, the finer end of life, you know, the artistic end of life, the, uh, you know, the, um, you know, the cultured end of life. And yet, yes. yet what you, your bent was, it was also to kind of save the planet in your own way. Well, yeah, a little bit. I mean, well, yeah, when I was a teenager, um, I think my first kind of activism, activism was um, being involved with Amnesty International, which was really big in England. And it's every, oh, a lot of schools had an Amnesty International group. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, and I started one at a second high school that I went to. Um, and I read, I remember reading when I was about 14, um, Steve Biko's I, I Write What I Like. And that's when I first learned about apartheid and <coughs> suffering because of inequality and racism. And I just thought, what? This is not... How is this possible? Um, and then, yeah, I don't know why I've always been um, really a really green person. I've always been a greenie. I mean, my husband, who was the, you know, the fifteen-year-old that I fell in love with, can remember me lecturing about him about <laughs> environmentalism when we were teenagers. <laughs> so I don't know where it comes from. I don't know if it comes from being in Australia and growing up just you know, being able to go down to the creek and you'd be down there for hours in the bush, you know, it was the 70s, you were hmm. just free. I don't know if it comes from that. I don't know where it comes from. But I just have always had that feeling that if we don't take care of nature, how it, you know, it is where we come from. It is us. I mean, maybe I don't believe in God. I don't believe in, you know, so I, I understand that's where we come from. That's where we go back to. So I... um just to go back a little bit, I worked in the arts for, for many years mm. and um, contemporary art is a very particular part of the arts. We did function on the smell of an oily rag most of the time, which is a lot of fun and you work in big groups and you're very supportive each, of each other. And I loved that and that is something that has taught me a lot in terms of what I'm trying to do now. Um, but in the end I got a little bit bitter with working around the clock and not getting paid. So I jumped ship into design and studied um, full-time for three years to become an interior designer and started my own interior design business. And what I thought I wanted to do with that business when I started it was um, incorporate a lot of artists into the interior design process. But what I understood really clearly when I came towards the end of that, that um, study period was that, no, I needed to incorporate sustainability into the interior design process, like yesterday. And I just couldn't see it happening fast enough. I mean, there are pockets of it and there's understanding and there's lots of people making products that you can use in the interior design process or architectural process that are um, sustainable. But we need so much more of it and we need such a bigger uptake. So that's what I've been trying to do with my business and that the clients that I have, trying to educate them about materials, about processes, about um, the longevity of things, the durability of things, um, not just where they come from, how you use them and how you then dispose of them. 
And so I'm doing that in my work um, in all sorts of different ways for different people. But I still had part of me that was feeling really quite anxious about not doing enough for the environment. It wasn't just enough to have a few clients who I could get them to throw their money at the right kind of things. Um, I needed to do more. And um, last year, I think, at the start of last year, I read uh, a news article on the Great Barrier Reef and, and I could even start crying now. I, it made me burst into tears because I just thought, this is chronic. This is so chronic. Why, why isn't everybody jumping up and down about this? You know, like the reef is dying and that's one of our, you know, key, um, you know, um, what would you say? It's iconic for Australians, right? The, the, the Great Barrier it's Reef is in our of the waters. World, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, something that we're meant to be vastly proud of and we're not even protecting it. Um, and in fact, we're producing so much of the coal that is being burnt that's leading to, you know, global warming that's leading to its demise. What the hell is going on? And I just thought, I have to do something about this. But what can I do? Mm. Um, and so I sent an email out to a whole bunch of people and said, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to write to Malcolm Turnbull every single day until, he, until the next election and tell him he's got to do something about him. And, and each time tell him about a marine creature that, that needs the reef to survive. I thought, great, great, okay, I'm going to get his attention. <laughs> and can all of you guys, if I send you the email, can you send it as well? We'll just send it to loads of politicians and annoy the crap out of them and educate them. And, um, and actually a friend of mine who works in marketing sent me, called me and said, what's that going to do? What do you, what's that going to do? Why would you do that? They just put it in their, in their you know, trash. Um, it won't even get into their inbox. You'll just get a, a, a standard reply. You know, they won't even look at it. I said, no, no, they'll look at it. <laughs> but we ended up having conversations over quite a long period. He, he was playing devil's advocate, but he was trying to get me to see that if I wanted to do something, I actually needed to be a bit more systematic about it and smarter about it and have a bigger game plan. I haven't managed to stick to everything he's told me because I just wanted to get started and he wanted to have more of a long lead time. And, but he, he did give me a few key bits of information which then enabled me to basically just start this little initiative, which is really just based on my own behaviour and trying to encourage other people to see like the shift they can actually make quite easily. Um, so he said, you know, you've got, you don't tell people the negatives, tell people the positives. And I said, but they need to know the negatives. Like, they need to know the reef's dying. He said, yeah, but people are bored of that. So how could they be bored? They are. They're over it. It just seems too overwhelming. How can they have any impact? And I thought, you can have an impact every single day, every choice you make. He said, well, that's what you need to get people to understand that's what you need to try and communicate. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get there on my own. What I've realised is um, that I'm part of a community of people doing things like you, you know, really inspiring people, fighting a good fight on one, on one particular thing or on one level, and that the more people who join into that, the better.
Well, Jacqueline, there's definitely a rising consciousness. There is. In, your, in the space that you want to be in. Yes, there is. Um, and it's global. Yes. And there are people all over the world doing all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're recognising there is a problem, yes. many problems, and they need to be resolved quickly. Yes. If we're to survive. Yes. I mean, I can't imagine a life living on a rubbish heap, but that's well, where we're going. And essentially it's where we are now. Like, I, So I started to do clean-ups is one thing I do and become really obsessed with waste, um, which doesn't directly impact the reef but actually or the health of reefs around the world but actually when you look at it there are so many things that are interconnected and how we deal with our waste en masse and individually does have a massive impact i mean um disease in reefs um or the potential for disease on a on a reef um goes from four percent to 90 something percent if plastic is present because plastic in the water attracts all sorts of disease and toxins and microbes mm. that then can colonise mm. the reef. So mm. I just was like, right, well, I've got to get everything that's on the coastline near me into a bin <laughs> so it can't go in the water. So, listeners, just remember, if you like Float Your Boat, go and review us on whichever app you're using at the moment, whether it be... On your Android or your iPhone. Yes, and be sure to review, uh, find the review tag. And yep. click on that and write a nice review or, yes. and subscribe yes. because all of that goes into pushing us up the rankings a little bit more so we can spread the love of Float Your Boat out there to the real world. And apart from all that, we really would appreciate it. We would. We appreciate all of that stuff. And, and if you've got somebody that you think would be great for us to interview... Um, email us at fybpodcast at gmail.com. Terrific. Thank you. Is there any one thing or a few things that you've found in your travels now doing what you're doing that uh, keeps people engaged? Because a lot of this is about apathy. Yeah. Um, and, co- and convenience. Yeah. Let's face it, plastic's convenience. And apathy is people continue to buy it. Yes. So my question to you would be, is there, how do we keep these people engaged? You know, like you've got something on at South Maroubra on Sunday, right? Yep, Saturday. Saturday. And, you know, um, you want to get some people down there and clean up the beach and that's great. Mm -hmm. But how do you keep those people engaged to continue on? Because you're committed already. Mm. We're committed, so we're going to do yes. it anyway. How do you but... attract new people? Well, I'm in the middle of creating a website for the initiative that I've started is called Live the Difference Now, which is a little bit my own take on be the change you want to see in the world mm. and a little bit um, an understanding that you can make a difference right now. And you can have an impact in how you live as an individual that that accumulates to a really large amount over time. Um, that's a really important message to get across, that you may feel like what you're doing is to drop in the ocean. But actually, if you if you add it all up over time, it's not such a small drop. And then if I persuade you to do the same, then that's not small. And if I persuade you, then that's getting bigger and bigger. And the next thing is people 
people like to be part of a group. I mean, there's a real social aspect mm. to, to action, mm. um, even if you're doing it on your own. So I started to do things just on my own. So I'd, I'd do a cleanup of the dog park where I walk my dog every day and people see me and some people come up to me and say, what are you doing? And so I talk to them about it and they're, oh. Right, we see whales off that park every single winter. So anything going into that water is potentially food for them. I'm making an impact. Every single time I pick up a bit of rubbish, I can say to myself, that's not going in the water. Others will. Others' bits of rubbish will get into the water in different places in the world, but yep. that bit won't. Yep. And some people will come up to me and say, thanks. And I'll say, no worries. You could do it too when you walk your dog. Mm. Like it's, it, so there is appreciation out there. There's also like, what the hell is she doing? She's a rubbish lady. Crazy bag lady. Yeah, uh, and which my family do, you know, call me quite often. Um, you don't have the smeared lipstick across your face yet, but that, that'll come. No, that's, that's later in the night after some wine. Well, like every person who picks up rubbish, you should see the boot of my car. It's oh, got weird stuff in it that I just, I'll be driving, go, mm, pull over, seeing this pipe, pick it up, put it in the boot, deal with it later. Is that right? You know, like, yeah. And I, I, So I started to do this picking up rubbish and started an Instagram account, really simple, and then started to connect with other people all over the world doing stuff. So I talk quite regularly with someone in Texas who picks up rubbish off the, his local beach every single day. And he's a sculptor, he makes artworks out of it. You know, so I started to make these connections and started to feel better about like less anxious, less upset, less likely to burst into tears when I read about the reef. Because there's no those people out there who care and who are, who are acting. So I, knew, I understood that I needed to show that I was doing that. That in turn inspires other people and reassures them. Um, and then I was started to make little videos about saving energy and, and all that sort of thing. And I'm creating a website at the moment where I really need to um, communicate that, A, you can make a difference every single time I collect a bucket of rubbish every single day from that park, at the end of the year, that's a lot of rubbish. Mm. That's a lot of stuff not going into the water. And that's one thing I do. Mm. And I do lots of other things in terms of how I live at home, how I get around, how my children get around. You know, so that's my whole family doing it, you know, all of a sudden. Um, and then I might inspire one other person by what I'm doing and get them to join me and come for a beach cleanup, come to a workshop we're doing or... Or, I mean, I really want to get people composting. That's going to be a big thing for me because anything um, that goes into the general waste that's food stuff is creating methane, which is actually worse than carbon dioxide in terms of global warming. So really simply, if we all compost, even if we're in an apartment and we have a worm farm, even if it's half of what you produce mm. in terms of food scraps, you are lowering, you know, global warming. So... Your kids have to put up with you. Yes. They do. They do. I mean, because you do prosetalize a lot, you know. Like. Yeah. And, and, you, and, and they probably roll their eyes every time you say you didn't do such and such. But do you think that when they become adults that they'll be, di they'll be different yeah. from the kids that aren't being taught that? Yeah, that because it's habit. Hmm. And we need to change our habits. So they know they have to turn off the lights, but they're not allowed to have um, things plugged into the wall and switched on. You know, if they've stopped using something, switch it off at the wall. No, nothing's on standby power in our house. Um, 
my eldest, my 15-year-old, you know, he rides his bike to and from school. He picks up rubbish, comes home with his um, basket with rubbish. Um, they are taking them to, you know, demonstrations um, about climate change and... and yep. um, so they, the education works? I think it does. And, and uh, one of the other things I've been involved in um, about six or seven years ago at the boys' school... Um, we started a, a committee, a group of parents started a committee called the Eco Committee, and we decided we'd try and get the school to have a, a lighter footprint, um, but also get involved in the curriculum and be setting up workshops, workshops for kids and stuff like that. And we've been doing that for years. So there's, there's a lot of understanding in the student population about you know, sorting rubbish. Um, uh, I mean, we have focused a lot on waste because the, the waste management systems of the school are not great and we've been working at them, on them, you know, trying to get their, um, them to change certain things um, for a long time. And I also was consulting for the school for a while um, as part of a, a, the building committee and so I was able to specify products for their interiors that... Um, are either cradle to cradle or sustainable products, you know, GECA approved, which is some um, good environmental choice awards. So I do try and come at it through my work as well. I mean, mm. anytime I can, anytime I talk to anybody about paint, for example, you know, there's, there's paint that's produced through essentially petrol, uh, synthetic products, or there's natural paint. And we need to look at, um, not just the products we use every day that our food's packaged in, we need to look at how we package our actual living, um, what products we're using in our interiors, how that impacts our own health as well as the, the health of the environment. Um, so, yeah, education is massive. Mm. Creating better habits in our kids, creating an understanding that they've got a big problem that they're going to have to deal with mm. is, is really important. I think that corporations and governments are going to have to start changing their value judgments about things. It can't be purely economic because I think, you know, the more we um, disrespect our environment, the more that has an economic impact. Um, the problem is it's just not necessarily always direct and that's what's hard is to, to talk to someone on the street about the impact of our lifestyle on the reef. It's not direct for them. They can't see it. Mm. Well, I think we have – I agree with you that, uh, <coughs> that we need to reconsider this obsession with, um, you know, economic growth. Mm. Uh, we, me we measure GDP every, every year. But countries like Bhutan, mm. quite unique, they measure the gross domestic product and gross domestic happiness. Right. And where, where the happiness scale drops, they make rapid changes to keep the happiness level up even at the expense of GDP. Right. Because they're interested, the monarch there is interested in keeping... In happiness. ..keeping its, his people happy. Yes. Um, so they don't always run together. That's really interesting. Okay, Bhutan will be on my list. Yes, we, we don't, and we don't <laughs> seem to measure that because one thing is for certain, whilst we're obsessed with growth and that's c causing untold damage, it's not giving us the happiness that no. we're seeking because no. that's, that's deteriorating as well Yeah. in line with the way our environment is deteriorating. Yeah. We're, we're deteriorating as, yes. a, 
as a as a species. Yeah. Um, it seems to me that very few people are actually happy with their work, yes. with their lifestyle, with yes. you know. I, I mean, I'm. It's only through the my own observations, and so mm. it's a it's a sample study of what one. Yeah, but I, I mean, two. I've been <laughs> writing content for this for this website that I'm trying to get up. Hopefully, by the time this comes out, that would be good, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, and I have found myself focusing a lot on the feel good factor of taking action. That there's this plus environmentally, there's this plus um, economically. If you make this change, mm. if you you change this thing in your life, um, there's a feel good factor there as well. And it's almost like every single thing that I'm, you know, looking at in terms of an action people can just do from right now. There's a feel good factor in it, in each of it, and I know that every time I go and pick up rubbish, I make sure I do it every day. I'm happy if I've done that. I, f- I like I feel like I've served nature to a very small degree, mm. and I it gives me some sense of. I feel good. Because you're giving. Because I'm giving rather than yeah. taking all the Correct. time. Yeah, it's community. Yeah, it's like the I was in my head while you were saying that I was thinking about the French school um, festival that we did with you, yes, and we, we met, met you there. Yes. And uh, George and I complained for a day before and the morning of setting up. Oh God, we're going to carry the boxes. We're going to put the banners up. <laughs> but it ended up when we left. Yes. Our mood was totally the opposite. Yes. Because we met lots of people, people were excited about it. We were amazed at how little rubbish you'd managed to compress everything down to. George talks about that with every single person that we've oh, ever really? met. Mm. Um, he was impressed. He loves yeah. to wax lyrical, sort of puts it across that he did it. Oh. But, you know. Well, just to, just to put <laughs> no, 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 I do, rec- I, I do mention your name. He, oh. d- he does. Well, just to put no. people in the picture, what, what um, happened at the school fate at the French School of Sydney this year is that the fate committee, so the group of parents who have the ominous responsibility to, you know, hold um, fundraising things at the school, came to the eco committee, more parents, um, and said, we want to do a zero waste fate. How are we going to do it? And so we <clears throat> came up with this way to basically funnel everyone to one spot and they had to show us their rubbish essentially show us what you've got and we'll be able to tell you which bin to put it in Hmm. um which was really interesting because you had a discussion with every single person about what they had um we also controlled in a really tight way what they were going to be able to get their hands on in the first place at the fate Hmm. so there's lots and lots of compostable stuff so we we filled two whole compost bins full of stuff um that's now in the veggie patch of the school um but it's control that you need to take like mm. it's it was we covered every single bin in the school so no one could use it they had to come through us and that's what's difficult is not leaving people up to their own devices we even found people trying to stuff things under the covers that we put on the bins but we so we had someone roaming that day who would go ah go over there and get rid of it <laughs> that's so, fantastic but it, it just goes to show you i mean like we reduced the waste based on the figures from last year by like 95 percent or something it was amazing it's like I mean, it, it seems like people behave like uh, a lot of 
dog owners <laughs> when no one's looking. Yeah. And they scurry off and they don't pick up the food. Yeah. But when people are looking, ah, yeah. you've got to pick up. Yeah. Oh, don't get me started on that. <laughs> no, don't, don't go there. Because I've got go a dog but, and I'm a responsible like dog a human owner. tendency, right. So you strictly controlled it and it was a great outcome. Yeah. And actually then, and people like... Um, some people were a bit embarrassed to have to come up and show show us their handful of rubbish, like just in general. Most people were really interested to then have a conversation about mm. what could be done with the waste they'd created. And, you know, we had all sorts of things happening. So return and earn, uh, you know, we were telling people if you've bought a can of drink, um, which was all that was allowed to be sold, um, do not crush it, put it in the return and earn box, we get 10 more cents for the school. From it. So we made something like, I don't know, 30 bucks at the end of the day, 300 um, so that's cans good. and bottles. It's all, it all, and, you know, what's the figure? Um, making a glass bottle from recycled glass uses 70% less energy or something mm. like that. So it's just a no-brainer. Mm. How do they get in touch with you? Well, my business is the Design Commission and they can just go to thedesigncommission.com.au. Mm-hmm. And have a look at my work. And what about your new website for? So my new website will be livethedifferencenow.com.au um, and I'm hoping to get that online soon. I will have a link between the two there. Okay. Um, I've also got the Design Commission, oh, what do you call it, at the Design Commission on Instagram and at livethedifferencenow on Instagram. Great. That's right. Now over to you, Brett. Shoot. Over to me, George. <laughs> so the song you've chosen. So the song I've chosen is um, by Gil Scott Heron mm-hmm. and it's um, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised because I love that song. I love a bit of funk. I love that. I mean, you know, that was early hip-hop, that yep. spoken word stuff. But when I was, I mean, it's a, it's a call to the black community to to rise up against oppression in America, but it's always talked to me of action. Mm. You know, you cannot just plug in, turn on and cop out. The revolution will not be brought to you by Coke. The revolution will not be televised. It will be live. And I just want everybody to get out there and understand that and do something that makes something better. On that note, <laughs> Jacqueline... It's been an absolute Jacqueline, pleasure, Jacqueline. The, with the English accent from Australia. <laughs> Australia, mate. Thank you so much for coming thank in you, today. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Jacqueline. You will not be able to stay home, brother. not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on stag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by Xerox in four parts without commercial interruptions. The revolution will not show you pictures of Nixon blowing a bugle and leading a charge by John Mitchell, General Abrams, and Spiro Agnew to eat hog moths confiscated from a Harlem sanctuary. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by the shape of a war theater and will not star Natalie Woods and Steve McQueen or Bullwinkle and Julia. The revolution will not give your mouth sex appeal. The revolution will not get rid of the nub. The revolution will not make you look five pounds thinner because the revolution will not be televised, brother. 
There will be no pictures of you and Willie Mae pushing that shopping cart down the block on the dead run or trying to slide that color TV into a stolen ambulance. NBC will not be able to predict the winner at 8.32 on the court from 29 districts. The revolution will not be televised. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of Whitney Young being run out of Harlem on the rail with a brand new process. There will be no slow motion or still lights of Roy Wilkins strolling through Watts in a red, black, and green liberation jumpsuit that he has been saving for just the proper occasion. Acres, Beverly Hillbillies, and Hooterville Junction will no longer be so damn relevant, and women will not care if Dick finally got down with Jane on Search for Tomorrow, because black people will be in the street looking for a brighter day. The revolution will not be televised. There will be no highlights on the 11 o'clock news and no pictures of Harry R. Women Liberationist and Jackie Onassis blowing her nose. Song will not be written by Jim Webb or Francis Scott Keyes, nor sung by Glenn Campbell, Tom Jones, Johnny Cash, Engelbert Humperdinck, or the Rare Earth. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be right back after a message about a white tornado, white lightning, or white people. You will not have to worry about a dove in your bedroom, the tiger in your tank, or the giant in your toilet bowl. The revolution will not go better with coke. The revolution will not fight germs that may cause bad breath. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live.